Tom Dempsey was the leader of the Missouri Senate until he surprisingly decided to resign earlier this year. Now he's speaking out about his big decision and what's next for the Missouri Senate. He joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but uh, you no, know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in our very cozy St. Louis Public Radio studio is... Joe Manis, also St. Louis Public Radio. And our very special guest for today... Uh, Tom Dempsey. We are... We are Gateway Group. Gateway Group. And former leader of the Missouri Senate. I was just uh, joking on the elevator. I can call you Tom right now as opposed to, to Senator like I always do our when Mr. you're yeah. our Mr. Mr. Dempsey. President, or, yeah, pres- yeah, Tom's president, good. Yeah, Tom is president good. President pro temp. Um, but uh, we're, I guess we're continuing on our tradition. We always bring you in after veto session. And even though you're not in the Senate anymore and you were had pretty much no involvement in veto session, here you are anyway. Yeah, you're very polite to do this. No, so I, well, Joe, we talked before veto <laughs> session, and I, I thought uh, it was probably better that I talk after yeah. veto session. So, so I, I mean, be... a lot of people, your, your, your decision to leave early, I mean, you would have been termed out at the end of next year. Correct. Correct did take some people off guard. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and just sort of what you're doing now and just kind sure, of the, sure. the transition? Um, well, and certainly when I ran in um, the last election, 2000, my last election, which would have been 2012, you know, it was my intention to finish my term and something I, I would have liked to have done. Um, what complicated it was that um, <clears throat> We had the the partnership, and I'm I'm wasn't an owner of the banquet center that my wife and I ran um, for almost 25 years, but we took care of the day-to-day operations, you know, our customers for those almost 25 years. And in October of 2013, the owners entered into an agreement with the SSM Health Center, and they bought the property with the plan to, uh, uh, well, you've seen they've taken the building down and uh, are going to put a uh, like disease management center uh, they're going to construct there anyway over the next 14 months uh, we wound down the business took care of uh, all of our customers uh, tried to book as much business as we could and then in december uh, the december 31 2014 the business ceased operation and you know, I've continued to work and do my job as a as a state senator. Uh, the bank that I was working for uh, was very uh, kind and giving me the flexibility to, to be in leadership and to be a state senator and all the obligations that come with that job. Um, but, you know, we had the situation where we, you know, had to take care of our family. And I spent some time uh, in 2014, you know, quietly seeing if there was a way for me to to um, work and for my wife to work so that I could finish my term and just really couldn't make it happen. And so I, in about, uh, you know, November of uh, 14 decided that, okay, it's, you know, Terry Spieler had left, had uh, retired. Um, Jim Howard in, in December announced his resignation, thought, you know, I'm going to 
And that's for our listeners. That's the Secretary of the Senate yeah, the and the Senate, the Senate Administrator. Who'd been there for 38 years and the, the um, Senate Administrator who'd been there for, I think, at least 14 years. And it's, you know, I'm going to, um, you know, get through next session and then uh, revisit what we're going to do for our future here when session gets out. So. It's, it's interesting because um, I think a lot of people claw their way to get into the Missouri Senate. Some people have easier paths than others. Like I think the person that replaced Brad Lager was unopposed and didn't have to face an election. But oftentimes they're very coveted positions. But on the other hand, they're huge time commitments. They pay exactly the same as a state house member. And many of the members who are in the Senate still have to kind of make it work financially, especially if in your case you have a you have three kids and a wife and you know you got to take that into consideration yeah, as well yeah. and so well and i ask for the job yeah. so you know when right. when you get everything that comes with it you know and you know that when you sign up for it but you know i i didn't know that the the job situation changing in 2013 2014 you know that i didn't know that in january of 2012 or in November 2012. So most of your private working life, you've been in the restaurant business in some way, correct? Right. I'm uh, third generation. We've got a, uh, a single a proprietorship, the P.O.'s restaurant. Right. It's been open since uh, 1955, so celebrated our 60-year anniversary there. My dad and, and my sister run that. So the so the prospect of not only okay, losing the banquet center, but actually having to change careers in effect, I mean, isn't that what you ended up yeah, Having definitely. We were, my wife and I, talking about what our, and with term limits looming, you know, what, what's the next phase of our life? Yeah, and apparently it didn't involve a restaurant anymore. Well, it wasn't going to involve the banquet center, and, and certainly, the, I mean, the restaurants supported, you know, two families, if you include right. my, my P.O.'s two daughters. Right. And, uh, but, you know, we needed to do have more than that right. uh, as as far as options are concerned and so, so how did this come about so uh, you know i started uh after session didn't talk to anybody during session but after session you know started you know talking to people that i knew um kind of in the on the other, the, the governmental relations side because i did think that you know the the 15 years of experience had given me a certain perspective and a certain skill set, and and I enjoyed the work that that I continue continue to be uh, an advocate for things that I cared about, doing it in a way where I could support my family. Uh, certainly cognizant of the you know the kind of the revolving door attack, but um, I would once again see what I could do to to finish uh, my term. But you can't be a a lobbyist and and be an elected official. So, um, in June, I, I would, you know, I did talk to folks with MoDOT and let them know that I was interested in the executive director position. Um, I there was there were a couple other companies that I had interest in that were interested in me, but um, you know, David Jackson with Gateway Group. Yeah, I asked if I'd be interested in working with them, and I had gotten an opportunity to work with David and and with Kate. Uh, respected the work that they did and how they carried themselves in Jeff City. Looked at uh, how I believe uh, lobbying and governmental relations is evolving, and uh, I think that 
that they're a, a good firm and that they're going to continue to grow and that I could be a part of that growth. So, but I do want to ask this because, you know, there have been other legislators who went into lobbying or governmental relations. I'm not even sure what you're doing is technically lobbying, but the revolving door charge did come up after you decided to resign. And I think also just people that don't like Rex Singfeld also were mad because Gateway Group, I think, is a spinoff of Pelopidus, which was, I guess, a Rex Singfeld operation. I mean, you, you probably have heard all the criticism. Like, what's kind of your response to some of the people sure. that weren't, well, didn't approve of what you did? Well, Rex is a, a client. He's an important client on uh, tax policy and uh, education. And, you know, he he cares about his community. I think that's his interest. Um, we happen to share some common beliefs on, number one, tax policy being a factor in successful economic development policy, and that we have school districts that have been in decline um, in the St. Louis metro and other places around the state, and that the kind of the, the status quo was not turning those districts was not turning those districts around and we we owe it to the families and the kids who are in those districts to give them more to give them more opportunities and you know we worked on education bills the last couple years and um, uh, Kate was involved in talking to um, some of my colleagues on that so but he's not our only client and they uh, represented the National Restaurant Association um, and they've got uh, healthcare clients as well. Yeah, and, and so they continue. They continue to grow and develop new relationships. And what they talked to me about was that not only is uh, Missouri a place that they're they're working in, but uh, that they want to grow and do advocacy work in Washington D.C. and in Florida. And would I have an interest in that? And um, my wife would love to move to Florida at some point. My mom lives in Florida for full disclosure, and she enjoys it immensely. So Yeah, and I, one of the companies I was looking at wanted me to work in Oklahoma, and I texted her, and I said, what do you think? She said, I think Florida is a better option than Oklahoma. <laughs> so it's a situation where I, my understanding, because when the initial stories came out, you said you probably wouldn't lobby the Missouri legislature that much. It seems like your, your work is going to take you to other states, which kind of makes it different from other legislators who have resigned or gone into lobbying after they've termed out. Is that a fair assessment or could you possibly be in the Missouri Capitol, you know, yeah. twisting arms and, and whatnot? Yeah, well, I will say um, certainly there are no plans right now for me to lobby uh, my colleagues in Jeff City. Hmm. Uh, there's some, um, we have a criminal justice client um, that where I'm having meetings at the county level. Mm -hmm. across the state but uh, nothing in Jefferson nothing in Jefferson City and I was recently in in Washington DC and we'll be making a trip to uh, Florida a couple times uh, before the end of the year so you know uh, truly the intention was that that uh, we would have a DC operation at some point in the future uh -huh. and and also work in Tallahassee Tennessee is another place we're looking as well. Oh, okay. <clears throat> also a beautiful state. It, it's interesting because this issue of, of, of like a two-year cooling off period comes up. I guess you debated that in the Senate. But but this wouldn't have, but would not have affected you. It wouldn't have you. affected you. And I, I mean, to be candid, I've seen situations, I think, in D.C. and other states where those cooling off periods are in place. And what ends up happening is the former legislator or regulator becomes like an advisor 
they're not technically lobbying, but they're basically doing everything that a lobbyist would do. So I wonder if that would even be that effective if it was implemented in Missouri in the first place. Yeah, well, we have, um, you know, we've had research staff that has, uh, Senate research staff that has uh, gone into governmental relations. Mm -hmm. We have staffers for elected officials that have, have gone into governmental relations. And, you know, I... Everybody has advocates. You know, I, I remind people the American Cancer Society, um, uh, AARP, you know, I, folks like Pat Doherty, Joan Bray. Right. You know, it's not a uh, – when you make the sacrifice that we make, a sacri- the, that we make uh, in terms of uh, public service, it's because you care about, care about the issues that you're working on. And, you know, I think – I don't think it's a problem – if you conduct yourself ethically, I think is is what you what is should be most important, and and how you pursue the issues that you care about. And and I think that there are a lot of good people who work in Jefferson City. Uh, I think I was one of them. Um, that shouldn't be barred from that the ability to uh, be gainfully employed and you know beyond their public service in, so, in, in governmental relations. So in doing what you do, is there a particular type of tax policy that you're either advocating or encouraging when you're talking to people in D.C. or, or Florida? I mean, is this more of the... Yeah, I've not talked to anybody on tax policy in Florida or D.C. Okay, it's, so it's mainly health care at this point? Or? Uh, yeah, to date. I would, what I've, sort of I've just been there just a on, few weeks. So. Yeah, what sort of angle on health care are you taking? Well, I mean, you you look at everybody's talking about how can we provide uh, quality health care and do it at an affordable price. And you know, there was a model where you had you know government hand, handling the administration of that, and mm-hmm. there was a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse. Another way uh, to try to achieve those results, uh, managed care, is uh, something that has grown. Uh, in terms of uh, states choosing companies like Centene to manage those populations and try to, number one, provide quality care and and do it <laughs> with uh, the constraints that you have on what you have to spend. And then, you know, we work with some medical groups, physician medical groups, who believe that in through um, the patient-doctor relationship mm-hmm. and de- disease management that, you know, having patient-centered care where the doctor, physician is making those decisions, um, that that's another way to provide quality care and and to give them the resources to take care of, of, of the patient. And you can do that also um, affordably. And so that's, that's one of the things that we're talking about uh, still here in Missouri, but also at the national level. Well, is, is Medicaid expansion playing into this? Uh, I mean, maybe in other states or whatever. I'm just interested if you, if no, Gateway's involved in that uh, at all. Not specifically Medicaid expansion. We, we, I've not been in on any conversations where we've yeah. talked about it. I would imagine to convince us, I don't know if Florida but, has expanded Medicaid no, they have yet, not. but I would imagine it was going to take more than one lobbying group to decide to change the legislature's <laughs> mind and the governor's mind on that. That's probably more of a... Although there's been a lot of pressure in Florida over it because there's so much money. I mean, if if you think in Missouri that they've turned, regardless of the stance on it, that's, you know, the state has had to turn away a certain amount of federal money. In Florida, it's several times that. 
Yeah. I mean, it's just a lot more. I mean, I'm not advocating for or against it. Yeah, everything is bigger in Florida. Everything, right? Exactly. There's more people, bigger size. But I wanted to play a clip from your former St. Charles colleague uh, Scott Roop, who I talked with the day it was announced that you were going to leave the Senate, and he had what I would consider some interesting observations on what it was going to mean that somebody who had, I, I mean. One of the reasons why I think you were maybe a little bit different than many of the senators was you had been there when the Republicans were in the minority. I think you had a little bit more experience as far as being in the legislature than some of the people. And he, this is how he felt what was going to happen to the Senate after someone like you left. Every time something happens, I always think this is the final nail in the old Senate. I thought it was when Terry Spieler uh, resigned. And now that Tom's going, you know, I think that the old Senate what you and I would think of as the old Senate is probably no longer and has no hopes of coming uh, coming back in the short term. So I think his departure will affect uh, the tone and the way the Senate operates. Now, keep in mind, you were going to leave the Senate no matter what because you were termed out after after 2016. But he wasn't the only one who felt that your departure is going to have an impact on how the Senate operates because you were you had the reputation of being even keeled and having, I don't want to say conciliatory manner, but at least allowing other people and other perspectives to get their say out. I mean, what do you kind of make of what, what set former Senator Roop said? Well, I'm, I think the Senate as a deliberative body, I think it's, it's critically important to the state of Missouri that it remain a deliberative body. And I... I had the good fortune of working with a great group of people who I think, um, you know, if you, if you look at most of the, uh, of the senators that are there today, you know, they didn't, a number of them, a large majority of them didn't experience the kind of the several years uh, on economic development and tax credit reform where we worked and worked and worked and couldn't quite get there. And I think what they heard when they were running for office is that they'd like the Senate to be able to resolve big issues. One of the things that I remember hearing, I think, Matt Bartle say um, as he was getting close to term limits uh, was that because of term limits that this, the we were no longer capable of dealing with, with big, important subjects. And, you know, I, I think for the over the past three years uh, during my time as Senate president, we were able to work through some some very big issues. If you look at uh, the second injury fund, uh, you look at the revision of Missouri's criminal code, putting a transportation um, uh, initiative or, or on the on the ballot through the legislative process. It, it certainly, I, I recognize the results, but I, I think there was serious discussion and we, we gave vote, voters a choice. The, the bonding bill that we worked on that's going to allow the $40 million for the uh, Missouri Archives building, uh, protecting uh, Missouri um, history and uh, preserving our state capital and making some big investments across the the state and our university system. That wasn't, I mean, w- there were several. Uh, the, the tax cut, a historic tax cut. And, you know, it wasn't me doing that by myself. It was, you know, it was Scott Roop. It was Will Krause. It was, um, you know, on welfare reform, David Sater and, and senators working together instead of having 
34 people say over my dead body, will we do X? It was 34 people saying, you know, um, let's work together. If, you know, I'm willing to give a little bit. I'm still principled, but I can, there are compromises that I'm willing to make that if, if you can see the point I'm trying to make on something that's critically important to me, I'm willing to, to look at your ideas seriously and, and try to come to a consensus. Yeah, and not to get too in the weeds here, but when I started covering the legislature full-time in 2007, it was probably a far more acrimonious atmosphere than it is maybe in 2014, 2015, just because the two caucuses were just constantly at war with each other. This year when they PQ'd right to work, okay. you, you were there to right. vote on that, correct? correct? And you voted against PQing right to work and right to work as well. And then you were left, correct, because you had a family thing? Right. My daughter graduated um, from uh, her university, so I missed the last few days of session, but I was there for the – and the procedural um, – so, points of order. So what's your assessment of what happened and, I mean, no, I, why you took the positions you did? Well, it's – there have been and continue to be strong passions on both sides of the right-to-work issue. And I don't – you know, I don't think in any of my discussions uh, with you all or any discussion I had with with the people in my district or as I visited the state of Missouri, I said that I was a, a, a supporter of right-to-work. I, I – I, what I said was I, I – Listen, I, based on conversations I've had with people who've wanted to bring projects in the state of Missouri, it has been a factor in some decisions that have been made and not decisions that were not in our favor. Um, so I can't deny that right to work is a factor. Um, I don't think it, it's the be all end all um, factor that needs to change for Missouri to be a leader in the region or in the nation. And that's where, and, and also it's a, it's a difficult issue for, you know, me in my district and that I represent. Because um, your district has a lot of union people in it, correct? Right. And these are people that I have known my entire life, that I knew before I ever thought about entering the legislature, and that I'll know long after I leave the legislature. And, you know, they're, Maybe there, it was their parents that worked for McDonnell Douglas or, you know, people I go to church with who, who are uh, linemen for, for Ameren, you know, and it's, you know, you see those people every day. You see them when you're, you're picking your kids up from school and, uh, you know, the, the building trades were tremendously, uh, were a big part of St. Charles County. Uh, you've got the, the auto plan in the western part of the county. So, you know, I, I just looked at you know, there are other policies that are important also, uh, legal climate, tax policy, the regulatory climate, and um, targeted incentives are also a part of the equation yeah. as well. So, well, the reason why I mentioned kind of the histrionics of uh, the PQ is I'm pretty sure that the majority of the people that are in the Republican caucus, though not all, were in at least the House in 2007 when a lot of things were PQ'd. And things got so acrimonious in the Senate that stuff stopped getting done after a while. And it just kind of surprised me that even someone like, you know, now now President Pro Tem Ron Richard, who I guess was not speaker at the time, but he was in the House, didn't see that that would be the reaction among Democrats after it was PQ'd so early. Like, was was that kind of not surprising to you, given that you were in the House when that happened in 2007? Well, 
And I'll just say, when the House passed the right-to-work bill in February, I knew it was going to happen in May, and I had a pretty good idea of what was going to happen in September. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I'd, I mean, just you've had, look at the ag bill last year, look at the uh, gun nullification bill from a couple years ago. There's, there's just immense pressure once these bills get moving that they go to their, the, their final resting place. Well, well, that they basically, you know, with the governor's going to be in opposition or you have a pretty good idea and, and the people feel strongly about the issue. And then it's, there will be immense pressure to bring it up in September, and you know it's you get the sponsor who wants to bring it up, and you get leadership on board with bringing it up. Then you know you're gonna one way or the other you're gonna have a resolution. But um, here's what I said to Senator Kevney: I, there's overwhelming support for right to work in outstate Missouri, and for 13 years, an issue that. Ron Richard and many of my uh, Republican members cared about. Um, there was no vote that they were able to go back to their district, no action on something that they that was, for them, extremely important. Mm-hmm. And what I tried to have Senator Kevin understand, and maybe he could help explain to some of his members, is that you know, in, instead of the outrage that there was a, a PQ, and I, I think in addition to the, their being upset about the PQ, the fact that there was not a prolonged debate on it, that there were no opportunities to offer amendments. I think those were concerned problems that they had with it, but, but ultimately the the having the PQ was a problem. But I said, listen, for 13 years you, you were able to thwart one way or another a vote on something that a majority of my colleagues support. Yeah. You know, at some point you you've there's got to be action. And and um you know, it's we are there. It's it's a a forum of ideas. Yeah. And, but I I have to ask and, yeah, and sorry. you need to no and I have been one in in the 3 years that I was Senate president and my two as majority leader said listen we I think it's important to work hard on these things, and we've got to get to a vote on some of them, even yeah. things that I, you know, couldn't support. And so, yeah. you know, at, at the end of the day, let's – you're not going to be able to uh, keep from having a vote on, on something uh, like right to work forever, and that the, the, the legislature needs to needs to take a – legislators need to take a Well, this was going to be my question, and I've asked this before, and I think I know the answer to this, but – Okay, so the Republicans had the executive man, the they they had the governorship and they had both chambers of the legislature from 2005 to 2008. There was ample opportunity to pass right to work during that time and have Governor Blunt sign it. But what I've been told is there was some sort of deal yes. that Governor Blunt made about how he wasn't going to make it a priority. But there was no like threats to primary Matt Blunt. There was no recriminations against people that decided not to make that a priority. I didn't hear Lieutenant Governor Kinder talk about right to work that much during that time. But wasn't that the window of time to pass something like right to work when you had a governorship and Republicans just didn't decide to do it for some reason and they missed that opportunity? Yeah, I I was the majority leader of the House at that time. Um, I'm not aware of any deal that was made. I wrote about it and he there was. Okay, (laughs) I'm just saying I don't recall. No one ever said 
to me that there was a I deal. guess the, the reason for the anecdotes, I'm just kind of wondering, like, why didn't the Republicans push harder when they had a better chance of implementing right. it then? Or was it just not as – I mean, this is what intrigued me was that it wasn't as big an issue. And, and he had met with labor, and I so I wrote about the meetings, and, and um, they – McVeigh, who was then um, president of the AFL-CIO, you know, they said they had the, – the, the governor had agreed that he wouldn't be pushing it. And Blunt's staff at the time acknowledged that was true, that he wasn't going to block it if it went through the General Assembly, but he wasn't going to be, like, out there pushing for the General Assembly to act on it. But the General Assembly didn't. Now, I mean, it, was, it wasn't a big issue. It was issue. never a priority during that time. Do you have any insight on well, why it wasn't? I, I, during that time, I certainly know there were guys like Steve Hunter and others that were, it still was a priority for them. Um, but I'd, I'd not certain that we had the votes in the house at that time we had we didn't have the 116 mm-hmm. members that they have today or 118 members that they right. have today I, th- I think at the time that i was there our numbers were maybe 90 and 97 that could yeah, be a reason that's what i'm thinking yeah. uh so and and also the the margins in the senate were much closer you know you're looking at probably you know 19 15 you know, yeah, but they were yeah. PQing stuff all the time there uh, in 2006 and seven. So I think that's the reason I asked that question. But the margin is an important thing to is an important difference. It was much smaller margins back yeah. then. But you know, I, you know, the, I guess my disappointment would be, would be and and over my 15 years in the legislature, you know, I go back 2005. I know there were members that uh, because of their districts uh, couldn't support the yellow eligibility changes that we made to Medicaid, you know, and we accepted that as a party that we wouldn't, not everybody was going to vote for that bill. Um, We had a few years ago, we had, you know, one of the complaints that I hear most about from businesses are that Missouri's employment laws are among the worst in the nation. And we had a bill that where we had the numbers to override in the Senate, we did not have the the votes in the House for an override, and you know we did not question members' party affiliation when we couldn't, you know, get every single member to support the override on the on the employment discrimination bill. Uh, you know, I think education reform is an is an important um, economic. It's a, an important quality of life issue. It's an important economic development issue, and. You know, we've passed two education transfer bills that had maybe some toy, some type of choice component um, to help those kids that are in failing schools. Uh, we've had the votes to override in the Senate the last two years. Couldn't get there in the House. You know, we, you know, we, as much as we don't like it, we accept that we don't have the support we need for an override on that. And uh, it just doesn't it, seem like it's happening. Like. After right to work failed during veto session, some Republicans were basically saying, "We're going to primary people that didn't vote for this." There's a five hundred thousand dollar account from David Humphreys now, and it it just seems well, you know, people are allowed to do that, but it just seems odd that that happened this time. But when again there was a chance to to do it when the Republicans were in power. Those types of threats weren't happening, basically. Yeah, so. but and I think it is someone's right to run. If if you disagree, you know, with 
if you were someone in my district disagrees with the votes that I made or the positions that I held, well, then you have every right to run. I, I would say where sure. it was used as a threat that you either need to vote this way or I'm going to primary you, I said, you know, that's, I think, what, what, uh, what many have an objection to. But I think if, if there are people that, that don't like my vote um, who want to run for Senate, who don't like a representative Zare's vote and don't want to and want to run for house that's their prerogative to do it yes and that's the that's the system we're in that's why you run campaigns you say you know here's what i believe in and i i hope that that's what you support and i think that we were successful as a party and have been successful in, in, as a party at the legislative de- level because we were able to find people who were a good fit for their district and you can look at a race like the uh, John Lewis, uh, maybe Molly Tallarico, yeah. maybe the primary in Clayton. One of the things yes. I heard about at that time was that Molly was a better general election, matched up better for a general election against Joan Bray than John did. But John was more capable of winning the primary and what is um, for folks that I guess maybe listening, you don't know St. Louis as well. You know, kind of a an inner belt, uh, borderline. You know, either leaning Democrat district now, but maybe at that time was more of a toss up. And so it'll it'll be interesting to see how this plays out um, in terms of if if right to work is going to be you know kind of a, a core ideologic position in order to kind of win a Republican primary and and what we look back like as a majority after the 2016 cycle. Mm-hmm. Now, is there will you be active at all in either encouraging people to run for your seat? Um, and any thoughts about whether or not you might eventually get back into politics? Um, I'm not heavily involved and I'm not involved at all in determining who the next state senator is for the 23rd district. But I mean, even people just asking, hey, what do you think? I mean, are you getting those I'm happy to sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk with people who want to represent the district. And, you know, if they're kind enough to ask for my opinion, then, you know, they'll get it. And any any predictions? Well, there's three for our listeners there. I think there are three candidates who have announced and Zare, state representative from, I guess, the uh, eastern part of the district, Mark Parkinson, who also is from St. Charles, and a, a businessman named William Eagle. How do you pronounce his name? Um, Eagle. Bill Eagle. By yeah. Eagle. So, I've, and I've know or I've met Bill and worked with Mark and Ann. I guess in so, terms of yeah, and the other part of the county delegation. Yeah, the other thing that I think is kind of lingering that's kind of unknown now is you know. It's kind of assumed that Nixon's not going to call special elections for either this one, this seat, or the Paul Avoda's former seat. Is that your indication as well that this your seat may just be vacant for over a year, or have you gotten any indication about that? I've I've not gotten any indication. Um, I'm not sure what the in terms of when it would be called and what the earliest election date would be. But I, I think it's quite likely that it will remain vacant, and so there'll be a contested primary. As opposed to a committee choosing the nominee. Correct. And Correct. 
Although it's interesting because I remember some Democrats talking about in like 2007 that they thought your district was at least in their line of vision. It seems like it's not really quite there yet for the Democrats to competitively field a candidate in that district, even though there's a lot of organized labor that could potentially make it a more competitive seat than you thought. Is your is your indication it's still kind of a Republican leaning seat for the foreseeable future? I think future? it's a Republican leaning seat. It's it's lesser the lesser of the two seats in St. Charles County. The you've kind of got an, an eastern district, which is the eastern half of the county, and then a, the western half. And the western half, I think, is more Republican of the two. Um, but I, I still think that's a seat that we keep uh, next cycle. Now, I, the, for Joe's second part of the question, do you ever see yourself getting back into elective politics in the future? I know that your name has been thrown around as for governor, lieutenant governor, Congress, St. Charles County executive, dog catcher, you know, <laughs> you know starting pitcher for well, the Cardinals, all that I, sort of stuff. I, I loved the experience both at the city council level and then in the state legislature. Um, you know, I, I think at 48 years old, you know, I, there's – I think there's still a lot left for me out there, and you know, you see people get into uh, go back into elective office in their 60s sometimes, and so I, I would say I wouldn't say I would ever rule it out for the rest of my life, but it's not an immediate objective of mine. Yeah, and also that I guess you're in. Are you in Luktemeyer's district? Or are you in Ann Wagner's I district? I live in Congressman Luktemeyer's. Yeah. District. That's if he ever steps aside, which I'm getting no indication he's going to do anytime soon. There's going to be like a 30-way primary, and it's going to be <laughs> right. people right. from Jefferson City, from you know Franklin County, maybe some from St. Charles. That's going to. I think that might be the first and person to 13% wins that. Guy that voted against right to work is probably not going to do very good in that <laughs> congressional district. Well, because <laughs> <laughs> well, one, one thing that and, and intrigues but, me is because in St. Charles County there was a push. This is right before redistricting, saying that you know it's time for St. Charles County, which has been the fastest, the state's fastest growing county for a while, and now has more voters and population than the city of St. Louis to have its own uh, member of Congress rather than being split among two or more um, congressional districts. Do you have any take on that, any crystal ball? I mean, do you think maybe in 2021 they're going to have to uh, craft the district so that St. Charles does have its own rep? I'm curious in your take on that. I think it'll continue to be probably split in some fashion as much as, I mean, Senator Roop was handling the redistricting efforts on the Senate side. I, I, you know, I think both he and I wanted at some point in the future, um, as big of a, a county as St. Charles County is becoming and as, as important as it has been to Republican politics in the state of Missouri, that at some point in the future of our state that someone from St. Charles County should have a chance to represent the county. Um, and I think under the the current redistricting, under the current congressional maps, I think someone could. Um, but I am a supporter of Blaine Luptemeyer. Um I think he does a good job, a great job, and um, is is cognizant of what our interests are for St. Charles County. So I don't I don't see somebody from the county being able to challenge him, at least on our side of the aisle. Thank you very much for coming in. We, we, I don't know if you'll 
come in next year, but if you want to, you're more than welcome to continue on this tradition even after you're in elected office. Even if you're in Florida. <laughs> even if you're, you know, I think if you're in Florida, we'll, we'll, we'll let you stay in well, Florida. Well, it's... Uh... I was born and raised in St. Charles. Our son um, is going to high school in, in St. Charles, and that's one of the things that that we did say to to anyone that I was interested in working for is that I'm not going to leave until he's finished with high school. How and, old is he? How many years uh, does he have He's left? a sophomore in high school. Okay, so, so he's got two years left. Yeah, so we're going to be around for the foreseeable future <laughs> wow. here. And uh, I still care very much about what happens in Missouri and in, like, in some ways still going to be working uh, in parts of Missouri. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. If, uh, if you're interested in talking to me, uh, I'm, it's always good to visit with you guys. Well, yeah, we, thanks we, so much. It's always good to visit with you, too, uh, to close us out. STLPublicRadio.org is where all our stories are. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And I believe you have a new Twitter account. I think you actually started using Twitter again since the last time we spoke here. And then you changed your Twitter account <laughs> right. after you left well, the Well, I was Senate. at Senator Dempsey. And since I was no longer a senator, I, I needed to change that. So, so I'm uh, at Thomas D. Dempsey. Yeah. Uh, Chris Kelly may have to also take that transition. He's still Representative Kelly, C. Kelly, even though he's out of the legislature. Thank you very much, as always. And until next time, so long. It's so sad to think about the good times, you and I. Because, baby, now we got to